Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to have with us Andrew People, editor at The Wire China and co-founder and presenter of the podcast Asia Matters. Andrew, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself, tell us uh, who you are, what we should know about you, and definitely tell us about your podcast, please. Absolutely. Well, uh, as you said, my name is Andrew People. I am really a journalist. That's what I've been for most of my career. Um, I was at the Wall Street Journal for about 16 years. That started in 2003. And with them, I had stints in London, uh, Beijing, and Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong was our most recent um, trip abroad, and we lived there. I, I say we, my, me and my wife and family, we lived there from 2015 to, to 2019. And while I was at the Journal, I did various things. I was a reporter on Dow Jones Newswires. I was a columnist on the Heard on the Street uh, column and an editor of that as well. Uh, whilst I was in Hong Kong, I also edited our markets and finance coverage. Um, we came back in 2019 and I left the journal at that stage. Uh, for a little while, I worked with a trade group here in the UK called the China Britain Business Council, um, where I was the media and research director. And then earlier this year, uh, the opportunity came up to join The Wire China with David Barboza, who's, who runs uh, the, the, the Wire. Uh, it's a fantastic online magazine all about uh, China, business, politics, uh, and economics. Um, back before I was a journalist, I qualified as an accountant, uh, of all things, with uh, what was then Coopers & Lybrand. It's now um, PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC. Uh, I was with them for three years in London and also for a couple of years in Tokyo, in Japan. And even before that, I did the JET program, which is, as some of your listeners probably know, it's a, a teaching program in Japan, which I, I did for a year in Osaka. So I guess it's a career of going backwards and forwards between London and Asia, whether it's Japan or China or Hong Kong. And, uh, and here I am. Uh, and as you said as well, um, also, when I came back from Hong Kong, I started the Asia Matters podcast with a couple of colleagues, um, Vincent Nee and Rebecca Bailey, who were both then at the BBC. And we've been doing that uh, for the last year and a half, and it's been great fun. 
I can certainly relate to the fun of podcasting. Before we go any further, I just want to circle back to the to the JET program. I, I have to say, I have a at least a couple of friends that have have participated in the program. I think for for anyone who spends meaningful time in Asia, it's just one of these things that comes up on a regular basis, right? Many of the people yeah. that are doing beats in Asia, right? They're yes. they're in the in the JET program. I wish I had known about it, you know, when I was <laughs> when I was younger. Can you tell us more about that experience? Yeah, it's an extraordinary program. Um, I mean, I think it's still going. I, I've, I'm afraid I've lost touch, but um, you know, the Japanese government essentially flew out hundreds of um, people from the UK, America, Canada, English-speaking countries, essentially, and you get the chance to teach English in a in a high school or a junior high school in in Japan for a year. Some people stay stay for longer. Um, I mean, it's the sort of thing that back in the 90s when I did it, you know, the Japanese government, they were able to just throw money at this stuff. And I think it, from their point of view, it's been a tremendous success. I, I don't necessarily mean that's because, you know, Japanese people can all speak brilliant English now. That's probably still far from the case. But in terms of the soft power, uh, the image of Japan, you know, I went to Japan as a you know, in my early 20s, knew very little about the place and learned so much, fell in love with the place. I always love going back to Japan still now. I'll always say good things about Japan. But not only that, you know, my family and, you know, I think of my grandparents' generation, they went through the war, didn't have a great image of Japan, frankly. And, but, you know, they got to come and see it, got to come and see the culture, meet the Japanese people, of course. And I just think it's been, you know, a great thing for, for Japan. For me personally, it was fantastic. I, I you know, I left college uh, here in the UK. I'd had a fairly pretty traditional British education, which was fantastic. But I sort of just knew in my bones that, you know, there was a big world out there and I wanted to see it. Um, you know, the JET program could frankly have been any country and I probably would have tried to do it. But it's it was a very well organized program and I, I signed up for it. I remember going for my interview and they asked me what famous Japanese people I knew. And back then, the only one I could think of was Yoko Ono, right? I mean, I just knew so little about it. But um, it was just this fantastic introduction to Japan and Asia more generally. It broadened my horizons. It made me grow up a lot. It was my first ever sort of proper job. Uh, so just on so many levels, it was, a, it was a really great thing to do. Where in Japan were you, were you working? So I was in Osaka, in sort of greater Osaka. So I wasn't in the actual city itself, but in the sort of broader metropolis. And I taught in a, a town, little town there called Sakai, uh, which is famous for making knives, actually. And <laughs> um, it was just, it was just brilliant. I was just in an ordinary uh, high school there. And I mean, when I say teaching, you're sort of you're teaching in partnership with the local Japanese English teachers. So, uh, you know, it's very much a double act. Um, and, you know, it was just great fun. And going out in Osaka at the weekends was pretty fun too. Glad you were close to a, to a big city, I'm sure, because at least one of my friends, not too clear on, on some of the others, but a, one of my friends, I think he was on, what is it, Shikoku? Is that the island? Yeah. The, and uh, I mean, obviously there's there's a certain charm to that, but it could get a little, a little too remote at times. Yeah, you tended to find the people who went to places like that, their Japanese got really pretty good pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's like those guys in China that have spent some, some hard time in in the provinces right and they come mm. back and they're not only is there is their mandarin flawless but they can they can engage in banter you know in sichuanese you know with the uh, with the foot massage staff 
those are the folks that were in those rural areas, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, great. Let's let's pivot a little bit to your work as a as a journalist. I'm I'm very interested in in hearing more about this facet of your of your life. One one thing that I enjoy about the podcast is that it allows me to and, and I'm sure my co-host Jonathan who couldn't make it today if he, if he was here he would agree one of the great things about the podcast is that we get to to talk to people who do the sort of things that we we read about and and we we often wonder what what life is really like I think for every profession that is not yours or for for every experience that you haven't had people tend to have a certain image of, of what it entails. I think as you know, as I get older, some of the mystique might start to peel away from what we read, from from what we hear. But nonetheless, I mean, when it comes to journalism, it's, it's still a mystery to me. Hmm. So I'd love to hear more about what the job really entails. I mean, I think people see the the product, that people see the the end result, but there's there's a, a lot of work that goes behind that. Perhaps uh, you could share some experiences that are emblematic of, of that experience and and maybe just share with us a couple of tidbits of what life as a journalist is actually like. Yeah, I'll try. I mean, I, I always think I'm afraid journalism in some ways is one of those professions that probably is less exciting on the inside than it is on the outside. It's not quite like uh, all the president's men all the time, let's put it that way. And at the same time, there's not these days, there's not the sort of shouting and screaming and sort of general hysteria that perhaps used to go on. And there's certainly probably not the same level of drinking that used to go on, at least in the UK, when back in the 80s and before, um, it was a pretty legendary industry for the amount of alcohol everyone consumed. These days, yeah, sadly, you just don't have the time or the energy to do that so much. So um, yeah, so where shall I begin? Well, I, I sort of had different stages in my journalist career. As I said, I started out with Dow Jones Newswires, which is part of the Wall Street Journal. And, and in Newswire, for anyone who doesn't know, is a sort of, it's kind of where the news starts, as it were. Uh, so you're reporting, in my case, I was originally reporting on companies, and then I was reporting on the British economy, actually. So I spent a lot of time following Gordon Brown around. Gordon Brown was the finance minister, the equivalent of the treasury secretary back in those days. And you're you know, you're listening to speeches and you're going to press conferences and you're doing some doorstepping sometimes, which involves sort of you know hanging out outside meetings and trying to get a comment from the passing officials, the passing ministers, the passing uh, central bankers. So, you know, a lot of that, uh, was pretty good fun in terms of there was quite a lot of travel involved. I, I went to lots of sort of G7 type meetings around the world um, and other trips, some trips with Gordon Brown. He actually went to China whilst I was covering him. And, and that was fun. The most exhausting three days of my life in a way, because on a trip like that, you know, you just you get up at about five o'clock in the morning, you start going to events, um, you spend all day reporting. And then in the evening, you um, you know, you write it all up, you write all your stories. And then of course, you know, you've got to kind of, kind of got to go to the bar to hang out with the people, all the sources that you're trying to make. So it was just nonstop, but, but, but great fun. And, and, and really working on a newswire like that, I think was just fantastic grounding. It really taught me how, you know, breaking news works, how to get a headline out on our newswire quickly. So, you know, 
Gordon Brown or the Bank of England or the European Central Bank says something important and you've got to get it out as quickly as you can and you're you're sort of judged on how quickly you get those headlines out and then how quickly you get the story out. It really encourages you to write, you know, briefly and, and tightly. Um, you know, when I started out, I was definitely one of those journalists who thought, oh, you know, everyone's got to hear 1500 words of, you know, my great research and all these people I've spoken to. But, you know, as you go on, you realize the tighter, the, the, the easier to read your stories are, the shorter they are, often the better they are. Um, so that was great fun. Then I was lucky enough when I moved to Beijing, this was around 2007, uh, 2008, I got the opportunity, the, the journal at that time, launched this herd on the street column which if you don't know is sort of a column it's on the back of one of the sections of the wall street journal every day and it's kind of a commentary column it's you sort of analyzing stuff that's going on whether it's in the markets or to do with some company or uh to do with you know some economic policy and you know it's four to five hundred words and you you're writing pithily and you're trying to write cleverly the great thing about that job, in part, was you've got to hang out with some seriously impressive people, and you've got to talk to them kind of on background. So you've got to meet chief executives, chairman of companies, policymakers, other sorts of people. And because it was more of a commentary thing than breaking news, um, you know, you could talk to these people in a more sort of trusting way and they could be a little bit more open with you. And then you could sort of use the information that they talked about or their perspectives in the in the columns that you wrote. So I really enjoyed that. And I particularly enjoyed it in China because there I had sort of carte blanche for a while to just write about anything. And so one day I was writing about Chinese macroeconomic policy. The next day I was writing about Alibaba or Tencent or one of these extraordinary companies that they have in China, you know, that that in those days were growing so fast. Um, So, you know, and then later on after that, I became an editor and and editing as well is, is, is kind of a lot of fun because, you know, you're more based in the office, you're sort of and you're managing coverage and you're trying to decide what stories we should do each day and you're managing the different reporters and of course they all have different characters and different egos and different needs and so on and different strengths some of them are good at actually getting the news some of them are good at the writing and uh so you know being an editor as well was was good fun too you know there's nothing Having said that it's not quite like, you know, the journalism you see in the movies, there's nothing quite like a breaking story that's going on in the news. You know, some disaster, uh, one that springs to mind is, you know, when I was in Hong Kong for this last period, uh, there was a period in around 2015 where the Chinese financial markets just collapsed. Um, and, you know, nobody quite knew what was going on and nobody knew if it's, this was going to be even a threat to the the government, government itself. So you're there day to day and you're just picking up all these tidbits and your reporters are out there getting all these tidbits and you're trying to weave it into a coherent story that readers back in the US and elsewhere in the world are going to understand. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I really enjoyed ab- about the job back then. Uh, I don't know. That's quite a, a long-winded answer, but I hope hope that helps. It sure does. One thought that I have at times when I look at various 
professions. And again, some of them are big mysteries to me. So it is speculation. But for example, when it comes to the legal world, I, I do have some firsthand experience. I sometimes get the feeling that with some jobs, it's not necessarily that the job itself is unappealing, but rather the way in which all of the things that, that go with it. So just to give you an example, I I think sometimes of pilots, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of aviation and, and I think fundamentally, probably the vast majority, I would hope the vast majority of pilots enjoy that act of getting on the plane and, and flying. It's everything that you add to that. It's all the, the emails that you have to check. It's it's the the scheduling, right? And, I'm, and I imagine that that's something that happens across the board. We do see it in the legal profession as well, right? We, we see lawyers having to do all sorts of things that, that perhaps, uh, like you said, I mean, it's not uh, all the precedents men all the time, right? So for, for us, it's not, you know, whatever, uh, law and order all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think with journalism, there's been a change of that sort or perhaps just because of the nature of, of, our, of our changing world and, 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 and the, the way in which we all seem to be tied to, to our email inbox? Do, do you think that that's part of what's happened in journalism, that maybe the, the core functions remain similar to what they have been, but that perhaps there is all these other surrounding elements that may be impacted and perhaps not in a, in a positive way? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you're right, the sort of core of the job hasn't changed in some ways, you know, and you when you work, I know journalism, the media doesn't always have the greatest reputation these days, but, you know, trust me, when you work for a publication like the Wall Street Journal, you have to be very sure that what you're writing is as damn near accurate as you can get it and that you've been fair to your sources and that you've got your facts right and the facts and figures that you're using in that story are correct and you've got the quotes right. And, you know, you've talked to, when you write a big story in particular, you've talked to as wide a range of people as you can to get their, all of their perspectives. That, you know, the core thing there, whatever you're doing, whether you're writing a story or you're doing a, a podcast or you're doing a, a video, however you're presenting that story, those core elements haven't changed. I think in the practice of journalism, a couple of things have changed. And I, I can really mainly talk about, you know, writing about companies and finance rather than say politics, which I didn't cover so much. But you know, when you are a business journalist these days, you are facing these companies and some of them have just enormous public relations departments that I think there's some statistic a few years ago, it's maybe may even different now, but you know, there's sort of six or seven PR professionals to every journalist in the US these days. And, and I guess those figures are similar in the UK and they've probably even gone up since I saw that stat. And so, you know, you have these companies and then you have these public relations firms as well on top of that. And they're all trying, obviously, to get you to write the story in the way that's most favorable to them. Now, obviously, there's some stories that are pretty clear cut. You know, if BP dumps a load of oil into, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, there's not a lot that their PR firm can do to, to mitigate that, but they're going to try. And, you know, there are lots of stories that aren't quite as dramatic as that. 
um, where you're trying to get to the truth and you have all these people and, you know, they're telling, you know, they're telling their version of the truth. They're not necessarily always trying to deceive you or, or make your life problematic, but you know, they are there and there's stuff in your inbox and people are calling you. And so that, that I think has got harder. And as you say, the sheer volume of emails, the sheer volume of pitches, you know, just takes time to, to work through. So I think, I, and I think in some ways that has got harder over the years because of whatever social media, because people are more and more sensitive. It, it's become harder to have a sort of trusting relationship with sources or with, with companies um, where people are prepared to be open and honest with you in a way that you need for your stories. And so, you know, the way that PR firms and companies want you to write about them quite often doesn't really make for good journalism. It doesn't make for a good story. It's pretty bland language or whatever. So, you know, all of that, I think, has got harder over the years. It's difficult to be, say that in a tangible way. In some ways, it's an intangible. It's just it's just a feeling that um, those things have got harder over time, for sure. But, you know, as you say, the core of it, the core of what you're trying to do hasn't changed. You're trying to tell this story. You're trying to communicate. You're trying to tell people something they need to know in language they're going to understand. I want to go back to this idea of developing relationships and the difficulties that or how it's becoming harder. And I wanted to ask you specifically about the role of technology in that equation. You brought up social media, but I have a, a background in government and th there is uh, some overlap in, in what we used to do overseas. Uh, I was with the Foreign Service. There is you know, a part of what any government does overseas in some cases more openly, and then there are people that'll do it in more discreet ways, is to build relationships, to obtain information about what's happening in, in country X or, or, or Y. My part of the, uh, of the of the shop was the one that, that did things openly, so it was a little bit different. But I imagine that technology, the technological advances make it harder. The fact that it's easier to for, for a government like say, the Chinese government to, to track what you're doing. Uh, you've got your WeChat, and then they, they have ways of figuring out where you are, who you're talking to, probably has an impact on people's willingness to talk to a, to a foreign diplomat. Is that something that is impacting journalism as well, where perhaps uh, 20 years ago, um, if someone could, could reach out initially to, to a journalist, and there would probably be no record of that, whereas now, even a, a, an initial approach, unless you, you happen to run into someone at, a, at an event, but if any kind of, of, of attempt to communicate that you do over email or over, over the phone is likely to be, to be registered in some way, do you, do you think that that has a, an impact? And even in, a, in, in relatively open societies like we have here in the US or, or, or the UK, where again, there's more of a footprint, do you see that as impacting people's decisions when it comes to to deciding whether they want to be not an identified source i'm sure it does and i'm sure that on the journalist side at least these days of course you have to be incredibly careful about how you present yourself in emails any kind of electronic communication because you know that you know that 
communication could one day could be used in a court it could be used by as you say a, a government a hostile government to entrap you or to to punish you in some way and i think that probably has got harder over the years i mean when i was in china the period funnily enough when i was in china 2007 to 2010 was in many ways the period lots of people now say was probably the most open period in some ways for foreign journalists in China. It was the time of the Beijing Olympics, as you know, 2008. So, you know, China was pretty keen to portray a fairly positive um, image of itself at that moment. And that sort of lasted. So I guess this leads to my broader sort of thought on what you've said, which is, Yes, the social media, the technology and so on um, makes all of this kind of repression of journalists and repression of the relationships between journalists and sources um, ever harder. But it's also, but the key is really the attitude of the government, right? What we've seen in China, as everyone knows, over the last few years is a more and more authoritarian stance on the part of Xi Jinping and, and his administration. And that has, of course, reflected on, you know, foreign journalists and the atmosphere for foreign journalists in China. So, and of course, as an extension of that, you know, the authorities are using technology and other methods that they may not have had in the past, or they may not have had to this extent in the past, uh, to snoop on foreign journalists. And it's part of the part of the broad environment that that's made it harder to do journalism in China. But I guess what I'm saying is you can have all those tools, but if you have a more open sort of attitude at the top, um, they're not going to be used in a way that's so harmful to journalists or so prejudicial to journalists. Am I, am I making sense here? I mean, I think, I think it's, you know, you've got the tools, you don't have to use them in the way that they are being used these days and not just in China, as you say. No, absolutely. That's and that's a great point. Obviously, obviously, no, no, no amount of technology is going to make the difference if you're in a in an open society where where nobody really is going to care, right? If you if you spoke to a journalist or or, or a foreign diplomat, fascinating. Let's turn to your podcast. I could keep talking about journalism. <laughs> Let's switch to to your podcast. One of the things that that really jumped out at me when I was looking at the at the different episodes is. The very wide array of topics that that you're covering, lots of stories. Yeah, there, there's a lot of China content for sure, but there's also content on on other parts of Asia, India, Southeast Asia, even even the Pacific nations, right? Unless you're in that part of the world, they're they're usually not the focus of much attention. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about sort of your your overall approach to topic selection, but related to that. Do you think that when it comes to to Asia, when it comes to to to, to news coverage, uh, or or just in general to any sort of endeavor involving Asia, do you think China sometimes eclipses the rest of the region just because of its 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 heft? Obviously, there there is content that is clearly focused on China. If you want content on China, there are podcasts that are devoted to that. There are publications devoted to that. But even publications that that are supposed to have a broader focus or organizations that are supposed to be covering the entire continent, again, to some degree, it it it, it makes sense. And I'm not I'm not saying that it's that it's uh, illogical for China to to take up that much space. But do you think that perhaps 
there is a lack of content about other parts of Asia because of our fixation with with China. Well, that was part of the motivation for setting up the podcast. So as I say, we I came back from Hong Kong a couple of years ago, and I'd met um, Vincent Nee, who these days is the Guardian's uh, China affairs correspondent. He was at the BBC at that stage. And also Rebecca, who's our, our producer on the, on the show. And um, we did just feel that, as you say, there was a sort of, there were a lot of China podcasts out there and a, a lot of great podcasts on China. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I listened to loads of them. And, uh, but we just felt that there was a bit of a gap that, you know, looking at the region as a whole um, was something that isn't done in, in podcasts um, so much. I mean, there are others out there, but um, we felt that that was, um, you know, something that we could address and that would be interesting, frankly. I mean, you know, part of the motivation, frankly, of setting up a podcast is because I, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn more about some of the countries that we've covered um, some of them I've had more of a superficial knowledge of than others, and I just wanted to to learn more. So, in in some ways, that's you know the answer to your question about how we choose our topics is well, it's something I know I sort of know a bit about, but I'd I'd like to know more, and I think our listeners would like to know more. What we sort of thought as well was, um, you know, as you say, we've done a lot on China; it's it's inescapable. But we wanted to kind of look about at not just you know, how the US reacts to China or how Europe reacts to China, the kind of stuff that we read and hear about a lot. But, you know, what are they thinking in Japan? What are they thinking in Korea? What are they thinking in Indonesia, uh, India, all these other countries? How is the region sort of, how are the countries in this region, this vast and fascinating region, interacting with each other? Um, and, and what's happening there? You know, why is India falling out with China? Why is... Indonesia doing what it's doing, you know, why has Myanmar, you know, turned back to, to military rule? And how is that sort of interacting with the other countries around it and not just seeing it through the prism of what does the US think or what does the UK think? Um, which we, we we also hear plenty of. Now, I'm not saying we always achieve this, but that was kind of the philosophy we had. We also just thought that there were, you know, through my work out in the region, Vincent's contacts and so on, uh, that there were quite a lot of interesting kind of academics and public figures in those countries, um, you know, who speak good English and because it is an English speaking podcast. Um, and we wanted to sort of bring those, um, people out a bit more maybe and or bring them you know more of an audience um outside of the countries that they've been in uh, i don't mean that in a patronizing way i just mean it in a sort of you know rather than just turn to the sort of think tanks again in dc or in london or wherever else you know let's hear from the people from these regions th themselves and what um, and what they think and, and how they're thinking about um some of these big topics I mean, I, I sort of, I don't know, I don't know what sort of podcasts you've listened to and what models you've had. We have a podcast here in the UK, it's called In Our Time. And, and basically what they do is each week, this guy's pretty famous presenter here in the UK, Melvin Bragg, and he gets on three academics and they talk about anything. It could be like, you know, Henry VIII, or it could be about, um, you know, um, nuclear physics. 
and they just go from first principles and the, but it's getting these academics sort of out of their ivory tower to sort of talk in a publicly engaging way about the stuff they research into, whether it's history, science, uh, literature, something else. And, and that was the sort of model I, at least I had in mind was that, you know, we could get some smart people together and just explain some of these stories that people hear and read about, just go into them in, in a bit more background in the, in the way they do on that in our time show, very, very different sort of subject matter, but that was the sort of philosophy that I also had. So that was really our reasoning in setting it up that, you know, here was this region that, you know, not just that there were countries that we wanted to hear more about, but just more how those countries are interacting with each other and how this region is sort of growing and changing um, and the relations between the peoples and the governments in, in that region, how that's how, how that's all developing. In Our Times is a, is a great podcast. Yeah. Very glad you you brought it up. I mean, if we could do anything like that, it would be fantastic, you know, but um, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, definitely one of the one of the deans of the of the podcasting world. And actually, probably my mom's favorite podcast, I introduced her to it. And I don't know if it's because she can't switch to other podcasts now. I don't, I don't know if her technical skills allow her to, to look for others. But she she's an avid avid listener when she has to drive somewhere. That's that's her go to. I know this is a tough question, because certainly I feel as if everyone that I that I talk to on this podcast has many interesting things to to say. Let's say for someone who who wants to to have a listen, they they want to see what your your podcast is all about. Do you have a, a few episodes that that stand out that you would recommend to a first time listener, or that perhaps were particularly enjoyable or particularly important to you for for any reason? <laughs> the temptation here is to to talk about ones where our listener figures were not quite as good as the others, so I can just bump up the numbers a bit. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think um, where there's a couple uh, that spring to mind. Um, I really enjoyed. We did an episode on this Chinese company. It was called Luckin uh, Coffee. And there was a big sort of corporate scandal um, that went on at, at this company, um, Luck in China. And it turned out that, you know, all sorts of shenanigans had gone on in the way that the company was run and money disappearing and so on, so on and so forth. And that was, a, that was an episode that I thought, ah, you know, I think we should do this, but I think that not many people will be that interested. And actually, it was a really popular one. And we had good couple of good guests both from Hong Kong who could really um talk us through sort of the the whole story and then why it came apart and what the sort of implications were and I kind of actually going back to the in our time model I sort of like that I like to be able to get our guests to help us tell a story and then sort of you know tell us what it all means and what the broader implications were so that would be one um you highlighted um, the episode actually that we did on the Pacific Islands, and you know these countries, like these tiny countries, often uh, not not huge populations, but you know islands like Fiji, Samoa, uh, uh, where you know they're becoming sort of very much subject to the 
broader geopolitical forces, you know, the growth of China, um, but also what the US is doing to respond, and then how countries like Australia that are kind of caught in the middle are, are responding to. And I really enjoyed doing that program. Um, um, one that we did most recently was about the Olympics, actually. We, we just sort of th thought, well, here's the Olympics going on in Tokyo. The last Winter Olympics were in Korea and the next Winter Olympics are in Beijing. So you've got, you've got three Olympics in a row taking place in Asia. So let's look back at the other times that the Olympics have been hosted in that part of the world and what it's meant to Japan back in the 60s and Korea in the 80s and Beijing in 2008. So... Ah, uh, yeah, you know, it is a tough question because I've enjoyed, I, I, I've been, you know, I have in, genuinely enjoyed doing all of the episodes that we've done. And what's really surprised me in a way has been just the generosity of our guests, the generosity of their time and their insights and their willingness to, to talk uh, about, um, uh, you know, their fields. And, you know, that's actually something that I kind of always that I learned when I was a journalist, but I'm always surprised when I'm sort of reminded of it that often people like nothing more than to talk about their jobs and their interests. And if you get them talking and you get them sort of relaxed, then, um, you know, uh, you can get some really great insights and, and really learn a lot. So, um, that's been the joy of doing it, but those would be two or three of the episodes that we've done that I, I've really liked. And just lastly, on a sadder note, I mean, I have enjoyed the most recent one of the most recent ones we did with uh, Dan Mintu from Myanmar talking about just what's gone on there and what he thinks is going to happen next. I mean, this guy is, a, you know, the doyen of writers on Myanmar, um, really has that historical sweep of knowledge about the country, as well as, you know, being from there and and understanding what, what is happening now. And, and I just found it... Um, and just a brilliant speaker. And when you get that combination, you you can really, you can really learn a lot. And it, it's just really interesting and fascinating. We could certainly dig into some of these topics. There's so much to talk about, right, when it comes to Myanmar or the Olympics um, or the Pacific Islands. But I'd like to take advantage of of the fact that I'm, I'm assuming you're in the UK now, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, great. To be very honest with you, our UK coverage uh, has been a little bit thin, not because um, it hasn't been a choice. It's just been um, the way it's worked out. We've had more guests who are British than guests who are in the UK, just because the UK, of course, is a, is a, is a great expat nation and there are Brits all over the world. So it's, it's, it's been interesting that we've actually spoken to, to folks from the UK about other things. But nonetheless, like to take advantage of the fact that you're there, that you can give us that perspective. And rather than continuing to, to talk about Asia, I, I want to, to turn to what's happening in the UK. You're there. If you could perhaps just give us a, an overview of, of what's, what's happening. I mean, obviously things like Brexit are, are, and COVID are on, on everyone's minds. But beyond that, I mean, I think that one of the things that happens when you're not living in a country is that you're getting the, the headlines. Unless you you take the time to really read about the, the, what's happening and read the local newspapers, you're you're only gonna going to you're only going to be aware of the of the big stories, and unfortunately, that means that you miss out on some of the other things that are happening, right? So what are people watching on TV? What are, what are some of the trends and the, and the buzzwords that are, that are going around? All these things that, that give color to life in a particular society. So feel free to, to share whatever you think might, might be of interest. You know, what's happening in the UK these days? 
Wow, where do I start? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, so yeah, we came back. I came back uh, to live in the UK two years ago, and it's funny actually. Uh, you know, as I as I said at the start, you know, I've had various periods of living abroad, Japan, and and so on and so forth, and and I've never experienced this sort of culture shock that people talk about too much. But I must say that when I came back this time to the UK after four years in Hong Kong. Um, it did feel very different. And I've been thinking a lot about why. Um, I think the Brexit situation does till colour politics and, and in some ways the general mood in the country here. Um, and, you know, I personally have pretty strong, I don't want to go into Brexit and the rights and wrongs again, but I have, you know, I'm one of many people who have some fairly strong opinions on the rights and wrongs of Brexit. And I think that I was thinking about this the other day. It's because it was such a binary thing. It was yes or no. And it was so defining. You know, if you were on one side of the argument or the other side of the argument, um, it it really, it wasn't like a normal election. A referendum is so different from a normal election where, you know, you can vote for one party one time and you can think, oh yeah, I'll, I'll vote for these guys this time. And things go well or things go badly. And the next time the election comes along, you think, ah, actually, I think these guys are screwed up. I'm going to try the other lot. Or actually, I'm going to give the, these guys the benefit of the doubt. But it's 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 sort of, I don't want to say it's less passionate, but it's less sort of polarizing and it's less sort of defining. And But you know, now that because Brexit happened and it split the country almost down the middle, and it continues to split the country down the middle. And we'll be having these debates. Whatever happens in the future in this country, in Britain, it'll be sort of, oh, it's gone wrong because of Brexit. Oh, it's gone right because of Brexit. It's going to colour things for so long in a way that I don't think in, in a strange way other elections have in the past that I've, that I've lived through. So, so that's sort of the broader backdrop. And then we're kind of here then importing some of the culture war stuff that you guys have in America um, a bit, that's coming more and more into our politics. And you get these sort of, you know, I, I'm aware of the sort of the Tucker Carlson figures and the Fox News type figures on the one hand in America, and then the sort of MSNBC type. And we, we haven't quite gone that far in the UK. We don't have that kind of programming too much, but we do have some, you know, figures who are controversialists in that way on either side of the thing. And so, you know, one example, th this summer, you asked what people are watching on telly. Well, you know, a lot of the summer was taken up with what people watching the European football championships, big, big football tournaments. Uh, and England, the England football team has kind of not done very well in football for, for many, many years. But, you know, in the last couple of years, the team has, has sort of improved and, th and they got to the final. But of course, one of the controversial things was that the England team, which is very mixed in terms of ethnicity and background and so on and so forth they they always took a knee before the game started and this became just a huge deal with people you know screaming at each other on twitter and in the papers about whether this was right or wrong and you know some people went as far as say well i'm not going to support them if they carry on taking the knee and some of the fans at the ground were you know when they were allowed back in were booing the team when they did this but then of course Plenty of other people were saying what a great thing it is, and you know uh, that they were recognizing the the Black Lives Matter, and and it just became sort of you know this great stressful debate around simply just watching football, and so that's sort of 
you know, it just all feels a bit um, hysterical at the moment. And, you know, even Boris Johnson, who's the prime minister at the moment, he's quite a divisive figure. He's very, what we call a Marmite figure. You either love him or you hate him. And so <laughs> it feels like some of that, you know, and I think you have the same atmosphere in the US as being, has and chicken and egg stuff, you know, which came first, I don't know, but some of it's come over here to the UK or maybe we had it first with, with Brexit. Um, so there's that, you know, I mean, obviously day to day, my life is pretty pleasant. So, you know, it's not like all of these th things color uh, stuff all the time, but that's, you know, that has felt different coming back this time. And, and, you know, I think back to 2012 when we had the Olympics here and it was great a great time and, and very colorful and, uh, you know, quite sort of harmonious. And then just a few years on, everyone seems to be quite fractious. And obviously COVID hasn't helped with that, with everyone having to be at home and all the economic insecurity that's come with that. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that are common to um, a lot of developed countries are big problems here growing inequality, what to do about it, um, how to look after our aging population, all of these big questions, you know, they're, they're, they're big questions here, here in the UK as well. Um, and culturally it's, it, you know, in some ways it's hard to say because so much of culture has been shut down over the last few years. Um, but even there, again, there's a sort of conflict a bit between the sort of you know, are we going to remain open to the rest of the world in this country or are we going to become more self-reliant? Um, those sorts of debates, are, I, I feel, are, are colouring a lot of life and a lot of the discourse here in the UK at the moment. Fantastic. That's exactly what I was what I was hoping for. We'll have to provide other guests with a short clip and, and tell them this is the this is what we're looking for when we want that that snapshot of what's what's happening in your in your country. I'll be honest with you, I read English newspapers. You know, that's sort of my my go-to. I pay for a subscription to any English newspaper at any given time so that I can have full access to it because I find it a lot more bearable than our own local media. So so I do have something of a perspective, right? But it, it's fascinating that things are not more different, right? Like the fact that you go to The Guardian or The, the Times' website, and then the fact that the stories are not more different, right? That 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 is interesting in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating that you say that because to me, in some ways, it's, it's the opposite. And I don't want to, you know, totally disagree with you. But so for example, uh, you know, my I, I was just staying with my parents uh, this this week. Um, my son and I went to stay with my parents, and my dad went said he went down to the news agents. And there was this story this week about something to do with COVID and something to do with the government um, and what's happening between the UK and France, and to, you know whether people are going to be able to go on holiday in France and so on. And there's been a controversy about it. And and my dad was like. You know the, the 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 lead story about this on the um, uh, Daily Telegraph, which is generally a right wing newspaper, versus the lead story on the Guardian was completely different, and they were writing about the same the same thing. And I actually sort of slightly feel that, and maybe I'm looking at this with rose tinted glasses, but I feel like when I grew up and I was first reading newspapers, you could have a paper like the Telegraph, and yes, it's right wing, but it would have some left-wing columnists or it would have some 
you know, people from that sort of perspective writing for it sometimes, and ditto on the Guardian side. And there was a bit more, a bit more open mindedness. And now I just feel that the papers have become quite polarized, actually, even more polarized. So I hate to disagree with you, but I slight, you know, I actually think that, um, you know, rather like some of the media in the US, that it has become more polarized and, and it's quite difficult. And that, you know, that, well, I suppose the BBC has always been slagged off, but the slagging off that goes off off uh, of the BBC from both sides of the political spectrum is just off the charts these days. So anyway, that's just my thought, but uh, I'm sort of, you know, I get a bit tired of it. And I'm, although I'm a journalist, I've never actually worked for a UK paper, I should say. So I don't really know. I think it is more, you know, politicized when you're, when you're in that environment. Well, I'm old enough to remember when it was Hannity and Combs, when Sean Hannity <laughs> would sit uh, with a, you know, with a guy representing the left right. I mean, I, I, on Fox News, right? So, yeah. so I've seen that uh, that dramatic shift, right? Like, I, I mean, there was a time when, yeah, when Fox News at least attempted to have some sort of balance, right? And totally get that. And it's and again, it's 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 interesting to to hear. And it, and it goes back to the what I was kind of trying to say about Brexit, which is it's sort of, there's no compromise. There's no real room for compromise. You can't, well, I mean, I suppose some people are, you know, I voted no, but I'm, you know, well, I wasn't sure about it. It, it just feel, it f feels so polarizing rather than, like I say, when a normal election where you can vote for one party one time and you can kind of change your mind and vote for another the next time. You know, Brexit, you were either one side or the other and it feels like that polarization has spread you know, lots of other debates and aspects of, of life. I have to say, uh, this is obviously uh, an outsider's thought, but I was very shocked at how definitive that that decision was. I, I just just to offer a counterpoint in Florida, where I am uh, spending the pandemic winter. A few years ago, I forget exactly when it was. There was a referendum every election cycle. There's quite a few ballot initi initiatives. In, in Florida, it's relatively easy to get them on the ballot. And there was a vote on whether Florida should have high-speed rail, right? Which is a bit of an odd question to, to pose to the voters. But nonetheless, it was it was on the ballot and it was actually approved. The majority of Florida voters said, yeah, we should, we should have high-speed rail. And uh, the then governor thought, well, nah, you know, this is this is not something that I'm I'm on board with. And Essentially said, look, this is this is really not something that state can afford at the moment. Next election cycle, there was another ballot initiative to basically revoke the the original one. And, and you're talking about something far less momentous than than leaving the European Union. Mm. And it was basically revoked, right? So so for for a decision as important as as Brexit, right, to have been that that one-off vote, it, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I said in a way I didn't want to rehash. I mean, I should come clean. You know, I wasn't in favor of leaving the European Union, and I'm still not in favor of it. And, you know, if I if I was the dictator of England and Britain, we'd, we'd rejoin tomorrow. But, um, you know, there were many. So, from my perspective, there were many errors in the whole process, and probably one of them was to have it on a single majority vote. Where you know, I think what one of the things that's well documented is that the vote came during the 
sort of refugee crisis that was going on it obviously you know that a negative story like that was obviously going to color color some voters but you know that's that's my that's my own view on it so you know what could they have done differently maybe they could have gone for a sort of two-thirds or a 60 40 type majority type um voting requirement or and i think this is something they're talking about with a future scottish referendum now which is you know you can have one vote uh to leave but you you know maybe another vote after two years where you've had the negotiations and you've you've seen how it all plays out and you know okay guys do you still think this is a good idea and i think that's one idea i think they've got for scotland now which is to have an initial vote and then a sort of transition period if it you know if the scottish do vote to for independence and then to sort of have a confirmatory vote later on um i mean in defense of the sort of brexiteers and the government at the time um you know a majority vote is simple um it's pretty difficult to get to 60 40 or 66 33 or whatever it might be um it's such a complex thing leaving the european union that frankly once you've started it you probably you know going back on it is probably a mistake at least for a generation so you know so that's all arguable um so but you know yeah if it, if it was down to me we wouldn't have had the vote in the first place and we would have done it differently <laughs> once we decided to do it but uh you know that's that's just one of the many things about brexit that uh i probably disagree with andrew it's it's been a great conversation i mean we could we could probably go on for for a few more hours but before we bring things to an end uh i'd like to ask you for recommendations. I'm going to go ahead and recommend your podcast, Asia Matters. I'm going to go ahead and recommend In Our Times. But I'm going to do that. I'll make sure we don't we don't leave them out. But what could you recommend to our to our listeners? So having said that with Asia Matters we wanted to broaden away from China, I'm going to recommend a couple of books to do with China and the Chinese economy and I uh, hope that doesn't sort of turn too many listeners off, but um, a really interesting book that has come out recently. It's a short book. It's called Invisible China, and it's by a, uh, an American academic actually called Scott Rosell. Uh, it's based, um, I think, in Stanford in California. And uh, the book is about the sort of problems in China's education system and wealth inequality in China and um issues such as that and it's you know scott rosell is this guy who spent years decades on the ground researching in rural communities in in china and uh, and really got to understand the problems there and i think this book is causing quite a lot of interest in the sort of china watching community as it were because it talks about the fact that you know we all sort of think that China has this sort of miraculous education system and they're all, you know, every Chinese person is sort of brilliant at maths and science and they're, you know, blah, blah. But actually the statistics that Scott draws on show that for a country of China's level of development, actually the level of broader education is quite low. Uh, the number of people staying on to higher education is low. Um and that's storing up all sorts of problems for the economy in the future, um, alongside the sort of wealth inequality problems that, you know, are familiar in lots of other countries. And so it's just a really fascinating book. And it's partly interesting, I think, because a lot of people, we all look at China and we look at, say, its debt problems and, and 
some of the more immediate problems that the country has and sort of say, well, these are the big risks to China. But actually, this book is saying there's a big long-term risk here for China that they're not addressing, or at least they're not addressing sufficiently and sufficiently quickly um, to avoid. A related book actually is The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, which is by a, a longtime Bloomberg journalist called Dexter Roberts. And, and both of those books I would recommend to anyone um, who is interested in sort of just some of the broader issues uh, about China and the Chinese economy and where it's where it's all headed. Excellent. Looking forward to reading those. This was my original recommendation to the ones that I mentioned earlier. And there's a, a countryman of yours called Noel Phillips. He's got this aviation and, and travel YouTube channel. And I've recommended his, his channel before, but he had a, his, I, I believe this is his most recent video. I really enjoyed it. He, he took an overnight train from Moscow to St. Petersburg and uh, on board a, well, he describes it as Russia's most luxurious train, <laughs> um, which is called uh, the Krasnaya Strela. I hope I, I hope I'm getting that right. But I have to say, I was number one very impressed. But it was very nice. I, I thought, wow, this is this is something that that looks uh, pretty pretty cool. And just generally watching the video, and, and I mean, I've never been to Russia, so it's good to to see what it really is. And and he was also staying at a at an old hotel from the Soviet era. And he, I, I believe he stayed in his suite was actually an apartment used by Stalin at some wow. point. Wow. I have mixed feelings about, <laughs> about <laughs> staying in, in Stalin's apartment. Yeah. Um, but it was a very enjoyable video. It reminded me of how much I, I miss uh, traveling. So I'm going to go out and recommend yet another plug to Noel Phillips. It's uh, Russia's most luxurious train, the Krasnaya Strela, his latest episode. That sounds fascinating. That does sound fascinating. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in. I, I mean, I'm lucky to have been to Moscow and Petersburg, but you, you look at Russia and there's just this vast country. And I, I often look and think, God, what's what's there? What? <laughs> there must be some fantastic things to see and do. So uh, that sounds like a brilliant thing. Well, check it out. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought, you know, I'd, I'd love to be doing that right now. I'd love to be on that train, you know, drinking the vodka and yeah, and, and enjoying the, the, the wine and looking at the views. So, well, Andrew, thank you for the recommendations and thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. And thanks for giving me the chance to, to come on and talk about all these, all these different things. It's been great. Thank you. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. 